Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Today, author Mark Blagrave. Imagine that you've studied art under some of the great masters of the modern era in Europe or North America. And then, just as you're about to launch your career, a global crisis sends you scurrying back to your only safe, affordable place, your hometown. The crisis wasn't the pandemic of 2020. It was the Great Depression. But then, as now, the passion to make art and to question it wasn't snuffed out in the people compelled to create it. Mark Blagrave's new novel, Lay Figures, takes us into the lives of an extraordinary group drawn together in St. John of the 1930s. Their work, their arguments, rivalries, and love affairs, all intensified by the growing specter of another world war. I've reached Mark in St. Andrews, New Brunswick. Welcome to Book Me, Mark. Thanks, Costas. Lovely to be here. First of all, what attracted you to lay figures as a title? Well, I guess uh, a lot of my writing career has been spent in playwriting, and so I have a pretty strong interest in characters, but also a kind of a an interest in how character may not always exactly match a real person. And and lay figures, which are those um, funny little jointed wooden men and women that artists, visual artists use, struck me as a kind of a metaphor for for characterization in that uh, as as an author, you could manipulate them however you want. You can bend them, you can, well, you can't stretch them, but you can can bend them uh, and put them into poses. They never complain about the poses that they're in. and they, they kind of embody, uh, for me anyway, a, a kind of universal uh, pose that's devoid of an individual character. So it's kind of a stripped-down characterization, I guess. That was a long-winded way of saying that. <laughs> now, speaking of characters, the, the city of St. John is almost a character in lay figures, and you admit to your uh, ongoing love affair with it. Why is it so rich for you as a writer? St. John has so many wonderful tensions about it, and by that I mean if you if you think about the natural setting, which is absolutely drop dead gorgeous with that river and that harbor and the hills and all of that, and then what some people might call the uh, industrial blights on the uh, on the landscape, there's a kind of a wonderful contradiction and a tension that gives the city its energy. And you know some of the views from uh, from the shoreline in St. John are natural, pristine, unspoiled, and some of them are rather different from that. Um, the same uh, kind of tension, I, I think, uh, operates particularly in the uptown uh, where you've got heritage buildings that have been preserved largely and fortunately through the city being broke a lot of the time, and then some efforts to uh, so-called modernize uh, from, the, from the 60s and 70s, um, staring at one another across, uh, across King Street, for instance. You've got the tensions between a perception of a city that is thought of largely as a, as a blue-collar city, even today. I think, but this is a city that has hundreds of years of, uh, of arts and culture scene. So th- those kinds of tensions uh, in St. John appealed to me. Then for lay figures, I mean, the particular tension is, uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, is the, uh, the tension between the artistic vibrancy of the 1930s in St. John and the economic depression that St. John and most of the industrialized world was going through. 
Your central character, Elizabeth McKinnon, has returned from a year in Paris, but she doesn't want to stay with her parents in in a wealthy enclave on the outskirts of St. John. Uh, Instead, she rents a cheap flat uptown close to the harbor, where it turns out this bohemian cast of characters has created a very lively scene. Tell us why you chose Elizabeth to tell the story. I felt I needed a, a writer. I thought that for me to try to use a narrator who was one of the visual artists would be um, presumptuous and probably just disastrous, actually. So I, I needed someone with whom I could identify, whose artistic practice I could identify with. And I wanted somebody who would be um, different from me. Uh, so she's a, she's a poet, which is one of the things that, uh, well, I wish I were. I ain't. She has a, a kind of a an ability to be inside and outside of the of the scene all at once, and she's accused often by the other characters of being a watcher and not a doer. And part of what Elizabeth goes through, and part of what I guess I, as a writer, go through all the time, is is how do you find that balance between acting outside of things and observing and being involved? And so she came to me as a, a good way into the novel. She is loosely and very loosely based on P.K. Page, uh, the marvelous Canadian poet who did live in St. John during the years that the book is uh, is written about, and and with whom she shares a, a very few biographical details. And what about some of the artists themselves? Two of the artists, uh, William Upham and, and Frank Gray, are rivals with very different temperaments and different ambitions. Tell us about them. Well, William is, is very much a gut kind of artist, very much driven by his uh, passions uh, and uh, what Nietzsche would have called a Dionysian kind of artist. And, uh, and, and Frank is, is a very measured, very technically adept and accused by his friends and colleagues of being quite a cold artist. So, uh, so they represent sort of two poles of approach, with the contrast sometimes quite exaggerated, a little overly marked. Again, as Elizabeth is very, very, very loosely based on P.K. Page, there are elements, I believe, of Miller Britton in William, and there are elements of Jack Humphrey in, in Frank. Uh, they're by no means biographical renditions of those, of, of those artists, but in the period, those two figures did on occasion represent those two different poles. Elizabeth eventually models for both William and Frank, and I guess uh, sequentially as a lover to both men, and builds a deep understanding of what it means to be the subject of the male gaze, you know, the control it exerts over the subject, uh, not only during the modeling sessions, but even afterwards when the painting is sold. This seems to be one of the ideas that the artists and the models are, are wrestling with. Yeah, ab- absolutely. The book is um, is very interested in the differences uh, and and some of the um, coalescences between looking and and being looked at. As a an observer and as a writer, Elizabeth begins the book as a as a looker through her relationship first with Frank and later with William becomes a, a looky and uh, has to negotiate for herself how to be in in those relationships. Uh, the relationship with Frank doesn't last very long, but it does teach her to abstract herself from the uh, from the situation a bit. The relationship with William, she becomes at, at once really the looker and the looky with William as uh, she begins to write about uh, about what she believes to be William's experience. Uh, write it from a, what she again believes to be an inner kind of perspective. 
There are any number of wonderful characters in lay figures, but tell us about Henry, who seems to be a great collector of gossip. He seems to know what's going on with everyone. And, you know, he's given to almost speaking in kind of Oscar Wildean or, or Noel Coward-like epigrams sometimes. Tell us about Henry. Well, I think I think every really vibrant art scene needs uh, needs someone who is a who is a catalyst. Um, you think of the salons. You think of uh, you mentioned Noel Coward, very much a kind of a model for the way Henry talks. Um, again, there's a, a loose uh, historical basis in the uh, person of Ted Campbell in, in St. John, who, as I know you know, uh, had a studio that was part studio and part salon, and was a was a place where artists could drop in and let their hair down a bit and talk about art, but also talk about who was engaged with, with whom and, and uh, share bits of gossip and probably some bad wine. <laughs> a lay Figures is set in that period from 1938 to 1941, so it's really a world laced with economic inequality, there's not much of a market for art, and that world is slouching towards another war. What kind of pressures does this create for the people in your novel who, who are devoted to making art, no matter what the circumstances are around them. I guess, like most artists, most of the time, they um, they have to figure out how to how to make a living and how to make ends meet. And for for some of that, them that uh, involves uh, taking another job. So many of them support themselves uh, in different ways as uh, teachers and so forth, uh, basically to subsidize their art. Not a lot of granting around uh, for for them, although uh, some public commissions were going on in the 30s, and, and uh, William, in fact, gets and then loses uh, a public uh, commission. So he he wrestles that way with uh, with, with the economic situation. But uh, he of of all of the artist characters eventually uh, and and only temporarily gives up his uh, his art. And says, you know, this is this is nonsense. In a time like this, I can't paint. And so he goes to work at the Sims Brush Factory. Makes jokes about the artist taking over the means of production if he's going to be <laughs> producing brushes rather than paintings. But he, he eventually comes back to uh, comes back not only to his own art but to inspiring uh, Elizabeth to write a novel. You know, even amidst all the economic uh, pressures. Uh, they have to make. I mean, that's, I think, true of, of any artist. That's how you know you are one, is that uh, despite everything else, you can't stop doing it, even if it doesn't bring in any money. Uh, and even if it doesn't, and, and often it does solve uh, the world's problems immediately, it does It does feed the spirit, which uh, eventually maybe helps solve the world's problems just a little bit. There's also a tension among the artists uh, between the decision to make a stand and, and to try to make great art in their hometown or to move to a larger market where there's more artistic activity and more media coverage and, and more money, too. Is this something you've debated as a writer working in Atlantic Canada? I think a person can make art from wherever a person happens, happens to be. Um, my first book did come out with a, a Toronto publisher while I was living in Saxville, New Brunswick, and that was a kind of a long-distance relationship, which worked pretty well. My second book came out with the same publisher, by which time I was uh, living in exile for seven years in Ontario, uh, and I'm, I'm just absolutely thrilled now to be, uh, A, to be back in the Maritimes, and B, uh, to be working with Nimbus, who, from what I have seen, is 
incredibly professionally run organization with a with very ambitious uh, publicity plans and with a big reach and and it's really developing a, a, a huge reputation in the business so uh, it turns out you really can do it from here uh, which which I knew all along but it, it's always great to see that uh, to see that confirmed well Mark thank you very much for speaking with me today thank you Costas. Mark Blagrave is the author of Lay Figures. It's published by Nimbus. Check out dozens of conversations with the people who bring works of research and imagination to you. The authors, illustrators, editors, and designers of Atlantic Canada. All those conversations are on bookmepodcast.ca. Spread the word to everyone you know who's a reader. And if you'd like to comment on a podcast like today's with Mark Blagrave, our email address is info at bookmepodcast.ca. We also post alerts of new interviews on Instagram and Twitter. And a non-digital option if you're in the Lunenburg County area, our podcasts are broadcast every evening on the nonprofit radio station CHLU 93.7 FM, just before sign-off around 9 o'clock. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing. Our producer is Robin Grant, and I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. <laughs>